We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, church. If you um, have children K through second, they are free to be dismissed for children now. And uh, parents, when you go to pick up your kids, remember that you have to have your name tag. You have to have your number to get up there. Meaning if a mom goes up with the number and then a few minutes later the dad goes up, he's not going to be allowed up. All right. So don't punch our security guys. Don't get angry at them. You have to have that in hand or go together to be able to get up there. And so help us out with that for security with our children. Um, Guys, it is good to see you today. It is good to be back with you. If you are a guest here, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors at Emmaus. It's a joy to have you with us. And uh, man, we would love to meet you after the service. We'd love to hear your story. We could connect with you in a few ways. One, I'll be down front here after the service. I'd love to meet you, hear your name, um, know how you came to join us, pray with you if you would like to be prayed for. And so stop by, we'd love that. Also, at the Connect table out in the lobby, you can stop by, fill out a digital Connect card, get more information about our church. Uh, And then lastly, uh, you can scan the QR code behind me or go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. That's EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. And you can fill out a digital Connect card and get connected there. But guests, it's a joy to have you with us. We want you to know that this is a place where we believe um, that we can come in our brokenness and in our sin, and we can come and receive grace and healing from Christ. And so we're glad that you're with us. Covenant members, it's a joy to be back with you. I've been gone for four weeks on sabbatical, so gathering with other churches for four weeks, traveling some for four weeks, just taking some time of rest uh, with my family. And, uh, and so I have rookie jitters today. It kind of feels like my first sermon ever. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes in a moment. But it was a joy to be away. My sabbatical went nothing like I thought it would. Um, it's one of those where you think, here's a plan. Here's what I anticipate God doing. Here's what's going to happen. And literally, I can't think of a thing I thought was going to happen that actually happened. Um, and, uh, and yet it was exactly what I and my family needed during that time, um, especially considering just some things that the Lord allowed to come into our lives during those four weeks. And so, um, man, the Lord is good to us. Thank you for honoring that time away. Um, Other than running into one of you at Target and uh, one of you texting me, like it was just like complete, um, almost just kind of disconnect, which felt lonely and felt disorienting. And I felt like I um, wasn't needed. And you have all those things. You're like, oh my goodness, what's happening in my heart? There's some like, Um, issues going on here, and then it was just really sweet. So thank you for honoring that, Um, and thank you to our elders for pastoring well. Um, Got the update from Ben on Monday about everything that's been going on here as we sat and watched the doubleheader of the Royals at at Kauffman, and uh, it's the best way to get caught up on four weeks of what happened at church. And so just kind of walked through that and excited about um, what the Lord's doing here. A couple quick announcements for us. Um, We have a couple more weeks in one service. Beginning on August the 7th, we'll be going back to two services. All right, so plan on August the 7th, 9 and 1045. But for the next couple weeks, as Patrick asks, please help make room as we can start growing coming out of the summer and back into the fall. And so, um, so help us with that. Scoot in when you get here, Covenant members. We've got really comfortable couches on the front. We'd love for you to come sit down here and fight off the nap with us, right? And so you can make room that way. But we'll be going back to two services on the 7th. 
Um, also, uh, next Sunday at 6 p.m., our church plant that we're looking to plant next Easter, Trinity KC, they're going to be doing their next um, interest gathering. It's going to be at 6 p.m. next Sunday on the lawn of Nelson Atkins. And so if you're interested at that, that's kind of down in the direction that they're going to be planting. If you live in that area, if you're interested in that church plant, hang out with them. Bring a picnic dinner next week and come hang out with them on the lawn at 6 o'clock. Um, next Sunday for that interest meeting. Uh, and then um, the last thing I was just going to say is this. Hey, I just want to remind you that um, it, it, we have various ways for us as a church to give um, to the ministry that the Lord's doing through the church. You can do that through our online portal at EmmausKC.com. You can do that through our Venmo account. Um, there's actually a, a QR code out at our offering box in the lobby that you can scan for Venmo if you prefer that. And then you can also just give in that offering box. And so um, we'd invite you to continue doing that. June was a good month, and then July just crashed. And, uh, and when I came back and saw that July has kind of crashed, summer um, things happening, just thought, it's a good time to remind us, here's the ways that we can do this. And so thank you for giving um, to the ministry of the church. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the book of Acts, chapter 13. It's been eight weeks since we've been in Acts. We took a break for two short series. We're coming back to it. So let's pray, and then we'll look at Acts, chapter 13. Jesus, we love you. I thank you for your grace to us, um, to bring us and to gather us, and for us to sing, for us to worship, and for us to confess, and for us to be reminded of your forgiveness, for us to fellowship and to smile and to shake hands and to um, catch up with each other. And now, Father, we turn our portion of our service to the scriptures where we're asking you to speak to us. Spirit, we need you to speak a word to us from this passage. So would you open our hearts, would you soften our minds to receive what you would have to say to us? May we humbly lay ourselves before you and say, teach me, um, correct me, instruct me, encourage me as I need today. Spirit, I pray you would preach a better sermon than I have prepared for us. We need to hear from you. And Father, we pray that today you would be with our brother and sister, Sam and Shannon and their family, as today they woke up and they worshiped for the first time um, as a family with their new church um, in the Middle East. And so would you encourage them and would you strengthen them today? May their Sabbath be good. May you be with their family as they adjust to the calling and the mission that you have given them there. We pray these things in your name. <clears throat> Amen. Eight weeks since we've been here, we picked up, or we left off eight weeks ago in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, if you remember, persecution has begun kind of spreading throughout the church, and you have Herod who arrests James, the apostle, and he kills James, right? He arrests him and he has him executed. Then he arrests Peter, and his plan is to execute Peter, but in the middle of the night, God uh, miraculously rescues Peter. And so God comes into the prison, he breaks the chains down, he blinds the guards, uh, an angel leads Peter out of the prison and into the streets and then disappears, and Peter's left on the dark streets as a fugitive. He goes to a house where some of the church is gathered, he knocks on the door, the servant girl comes to the door, she gets excited that Peter's there and she runs back in and forgets to let him into the house. So he's just standing on the streets as a fugitive waiting for someone to come. Finally, Peter gets, he sees them, he tells them all that God has done, and then we see Peter disappear into the night. 
And I told you it's a turning point in the book of Acts. Peter, to this point, has been probably the primary figure that God has spread his mission through, and now it's turning to a man by the name of Saul. In today's passage, his name will be changed to Paul. Right? They will begin using the, the, the Greek version of it, Paul. And so Paul is there, um, and he's our central fi- human figure now gathering through the rest of this book. After Peter disappears into the night, King Herod, the same one who tried to have him executed, goes on a fury, and, and he, he begins chasing and killing the guards and other people and looking for them. And then he begins to believe that he is as a god and present himself to the people as a god, and God will have nothing to do with it, for there is one god, and God strikes him dead. Herod dies. We ended chapter 12 with verses 24 and 25. You can look at them with me. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Herod was trying to um, advance his name and his cause. God silences and kills his name and his cause. But it says, but the word of God continued to spread. And then Saul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, and they're about to be sent out. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let me read to us. Today we're going to be 13 through, chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Let me read this for us, and then we'll come back and we'll break it apart. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they were sent off. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. And immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The book of Acts is primarily about God's faithfulness to God's mission of spreading the gospel of Jesus by the power of the Spirit through those he has redeemed. Right? God has a mission, and he is faithful to that mission to complete that mission by spreading the gospel through the power of the Spirit through people whom he has redeemed. And throughout this, we actually will see, throughout the whole book of Acts, this mission continue. 
The idea is that this is not Paul's mission. This is not Peter's mission. It's not even the church's mission. It's God's mission. And God completes it through his church and through his people. As Tannehill says, Paul participates in a mission that began before him and will end after him. Right? It didn't begin with him and it doesn't terminate with him. It began before him and it will end long after him. Or as Charles Wesley said, God buries his workmen but continues his work. Right? God buries his workmen but continues his work. God raises up those that he has saved by his grace. He sends them out with a mission. He completes part of his mission through them. He puts them in the ground and his mission continues on. This is God's mission. It's bigger than Paul, and it's bigger than Peter, and it's bigger than the church, and it's bigger than Emmaus, and it's bigger than us. We're part of something divine. Throughout the rest of this book, we're going to find that it's pretty repetitive. We've got 20 weeks left in the book of Acts, which, just to kind of send a panic into you, that means we'll end Acts right at the time of Advent. Right, so 20 weeks until Advent, start shopping for your calendars, all right? Find the perfect one for your family. 20 weeks left, we could probably finish this book in about four or five weeks if we wanted to, right? It's a repetitive enough that we could go missionary journey one, missionary journey two, missionary journey three, the end, right? We could finish it in four or five sermons. It's also got enough to it that we could preach it probably in another 30 or 35. As we go, there's going to be a lot of repetition. And here's the story, city after city after city. Missionary goes into city, declares and displays the gospel. Some oppose him. Some receive the gospel. Missionary plants church. Missionary leaves city, goes to next city. Over and over and over again. This repetition that we're going to see again and again over the next 20 weeks is going to allow us to really hone in on, on a key spiritual truth that we have here. And that key spiritual truth is this, that Jesus has and is and will continue to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Right? He doesn't stop. He's never ceased, and he, he will continue to do this. We're going to see this over and over and over again, that he saves people from every nationality, and he saves people from every language, and he saves women, and he saves men. He saves the old, and he saves the young. He saves the educated, and he saves the ignorant. He saves the wealthy, and he saves the poor. He saves the liberal, and he saves the conservative. God saves people over and over again from every walk of life, and the good news about that, it means he can save you. He can also save the ones that you're sharing the gospel with. They are not outside of his reach of salvation. When we forget this, Right, the importance of us seeing this over and over and over again for the next 20 weeks is that when we forget this truth, that God is in the business and will continue to be in the business of saving people from every walk of life, when we forget this, we become numb to grace and we become void of worship. Right, when this becomes a truth in our hearts and in our lives that we are callous to or that we're apathetic to or that we just don't think about, we'll become numb to the grace of God in our lives and we become numb to the grace of God through us into the lives of other people. And our lives will become void of worship for this is the very reason that we worship our creator God. He's not a God who created us and stands back from afar with no hope of us knowing him or coming to him, but he's a God who created us that we left in our sin and he came to rescue and redeem us through his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, 
of nothing of our own doing, nothing of our own receiving that or earning that. Because of his complete grace, we worship him. So we're going to see this over and over and over again for 20 weeks. But by doing this over the next 20 weeks, looking at very repetitive stories, it also allows us to hone in on a few key truths in each one. Things that might not be the overall main point of that passage, but it is a point of the passage. And so it allows us to spend time looking at those and saying, Spirit, what do you have to teach us through your word here? So let's begin. Today, we're going to have four main points, four main categories, I guess I could say. It's a supernatural community. God creates a supernatural community. There's a spiritual sending. They're all S's. Are you impressed? Supernatural community, a spiritual sending, a serious correction, and a superior savior. A supernatural community, a spiritual sending, a serious correction, and a superior savior. First, a supernatural community. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. He opens chapter 13 for us by reading the church directory. Or going to the church website, hitting about leadership, who are the leaders of the church. These are the prophets and the teachers, or perhaps better translated, the prophet teachers, those who teach with the authority of the scripture, revealing to us our sin and the goodness and the gospel of Christ. And he lists out who they are. And I want us to take a moment to look at each of these names and see this motley crew that he has assembled. He begins first with Barnabas. If you've been with us through Acts, you may remember Barnabas from chapter 4. He was briefly mentioned to us. He was briefly mentioned to us right before a story at the beginning of chapter 5 that gets the attention of this portion of Acts. In chapter 4, at the end of it, it says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you remember, the story goes on, and there's another couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who liked the attention that Barnabas got for selling this field and giving the money to the church. So they went and sold a field and lied about the amount of money they sold it for, claimed they gave all the money to the church when they did it. And God strikes them dead. But Barnabas, Joseph, who's nicknamed Barnabas. He's so encouraging that one day the leaders of the church are like, you know what, Joseph? I'm gonna start calling you Barnabas. Barnabas is like, I kinda like my name Joseph. Like, no, 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 Barney, it's, it's Barnabas. All right, we're gonna call you that, right? This nickname six, I mean, how encouraging a guy do you have to be for your nickname to be son of encouragement? I mean, this is like Andrew King encouraging, right? Like son of encouragement, This is the nickname that sticks with him. He's the first person they mention in this passage, right? So at the church of Antioch, among the prophets and the teachers, you have Barnabas, the son of encouragement. You have Simeon, who was called Niger. Barnabas got his nickname from his character. Simeon gets his nickname from his skin color. Some of us are probably pretty uncomfortable with that nickname. Right, the reason for the name. He was likely from Ethiopia, 
definitely sub-Saharan Africa, he was black. And because of that, they nicknamed him Niger, which means black. He spoke a different language, came from a different culture, was of a different skin color than the rest. It's helpful for us to know the origin of him because it's helpful for us to see the diversity that's taking place here. So here we have this sub-Saharan African gathered with Mr. Encouragement from Cyprus. And then it says Lucius Cyrene. Cyrene was a city in North Africa, modern-day Libya. And so now you have a sub-Saharan African, you have a North African, and then you have Barnabas the Encourager. The list goes on, and this one is shocking. Now you have a man by the name of Menaean. What does it tell us about Menaean? It tells us that Menaean was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. We have Barnabas, who's described by his character, Simeon, who's described by his color, Lucius, who's described by his city, and now Menaean, who's described by his friend, his social group. Menaean is the lifelong friend to Herod the Tetrarch. Many theologians believe, or at least some theologians believe, this he could actually possibly be a, a half-brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, let me put some pieces together for you, is Herod Antipas, meaning that his father was Herod the Great, who slaughtered tens of thousands of babies in Bethlehem looking for Jesus when Jesus was born. Herod Antipas was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded because he had lust in his heart for a 15-year-old stripper who was dancing, and when he said, what can I do for you, for you have pleased me so much, she said, cut off John's head, and he did. The same Herod who then put Jesus on trial and then released Jesus, though he found no guilt in him, released Jesus back to the Jews, or back to, excuse me, the Romans to be executed. This is, a, this is a, a broken family this guy is friends with, that he grew up in their household. I mean, when he comes into the church and claims faith, don't you know that that membership interview had some serious questions? Like, number one, why didn't you stop them from turning Jesus over to the mob? Number two, why didn't you stop them from killing John the Baptist? Number three, do you still talk to them? Like, are they coming to our church picnic? Like, I think these might be some people that you need to break off relationships with. And then you have Saul, who if you're just now jumping into scripture, looks like, well, that's, that's a good fit because Josh just told us he's the central human figure of the gospel moving forth now, except for the fact that he's just now the central human figure of the gospel going forth. To this point, he's been the central human figure of opposing the gospel. Because you remember, he, just was, he was just um, converted by Christ just in chapter 9. He was on, his, on the road, on his way for a business trip, and Jesus meets him on the road through a bright light from heaven, knocks him off his horse, strikes him blind, and tells him to follow him, and he does. But do you remember what his business trip was? He was on his way to kill Christians. He was on his way to remove fathers from their wives and their children, to take mothers from the home, to orphan kids, to imprison followers of Christ. This is a motley crew of people. The encourager, the sub-Saharan African, 
the North African, the friend of the murderers of innocence, Saul, the murderer of innocence. And this is a crew that was gathered together and experiencing a radical salvation by grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's a word of hope for us. If Jesus can save Libyans and Ethiopians and Mediterraneans and Jews, and if he can save elite friends of Herod, the murderer of innocents, and he can save those who are so morally good that they get nicknamed Barnabas and son of encouragement, if he can save people like this, then he can save people like you and like me and like our children and like our family and our neighbors and those that we're sharing the gospel with. I mean, look around you for a moment. Like, seriously, take a moment to look around you. Look at the people. The person next to you is far more simple than you have any idea. If you could see the sin of their heart, you might actually want to scoot a seat away. And if they could see yours, they might the same. We are gathered here as a motley crew. Broken, sinners, lustful, murderers, if not in action and thought. Haters, bitter, wicked, thieves, and we're gathered together in one room, not for a movie, but to hear the word of God because of the grace of Jesus to save us, though we are far off. We also see a spiritual sending. Chapter 13, verses 2 through 4. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Right, we have a spiritual sending. Notice that the church is fasting and they're praying when they hear from the Spirit to do this. Right, it's one of the important factors that just a few weeks ago we preached a four-week series through uh, called Foundations of Formation where we talked about prayer and we talked about solitude. We talked about rest. We talked about um, lament. We talked about being in the presence of God in prayer, quieting ourselves before him, putting ourselves in a place where we rid ourselves of the distractions that can actually hear what the Spirit is telling us. Over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts, you see the church fast and pray and then the Spirit move. Over and over again. So here they're fasting and praying, and the Spirit speaks to them and says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas so that they can be my missionaries and be sent out. So then it says the church then received that from the Spirit, again fasted and prayed, and then they laid their hands on them, prayed for them, and they sent them off. And then notice the next verse, verse 4. The church sent them off, but as the church sent them off, it says they were sent off by the Spirit. So they were sent off by the church, but as the church sent them off, the Spirit sent them, right? God is so closely connected to his church that, that as this takes place, as the church sins, it is God sending. You have this kind of in the reverse in, um, when Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, when he's on the road and Jesus knocks him off the horse and Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, what do you mean persecute? How have I persecuted you? He said, when you've persecuted my church, you've persecuted me. The groom is so closely attached to the bride that they're one in a way. And here when the church sins, it is the spirit sending him. 
And so they reach out their hands, they lay their hands on them and they send them out. You've seen us do this here at Emmaus over and over and over and over again. We call them gospel goodbyes where those who are of us come forward and we lay hands on them. And there was that terrible season during COVID when we had to stretch our hands and pretend like we were laying our hands on them. But when we can, we come and physically lay our hands on them and we send them out in the power of the Spirit. It's the supernatural sending. And so church, just two things on this. One, when we send people, when we lay hands on people and we pray for them and we send them, like, would you take it seriously? It's not just another goodbye. We have those all the time in life. It's a spiritual, a supernatural goodbye. It is actually the church going, we believe that God has called you to this and we want to send you with the blessing and the power of the Spirit to do this. It is a spiritual sending. And then the other thing is this. Like if you feel the desire to be in ministry, to pursue ministry, whether that's within a church or whether that's um, as a missionary, vocationally or not vocationally, but you feel like you want to be sent out, you want to leave and go someplace intentionally for the sake of spreading the gospel, then please do that through the church. Come to the church, walk with the church, receive correction from the church, receive guidance from the church, let us speak into your life and then let us as a church pray for you and send you because you want to go with the blessing and the power of the spirit which he gives through his church's sending. So take that seriously. Thirdly, there's a serious correction. Verse five through 10. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Do you feel the tension here? Let's just walk through the story. Paul and Barnabas come and they begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. They're declaring who Jesus is, his life and his death and his resurrection, and the word is spreading. But when they get there, there is a magician, right? This magician's name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, ironic. Son of Jesus, Bar-Jesus is gathered there, and he's a magician, and not like the dinner table card trick type of magician, right? Like sorcerer, wickedness um, type of magician who makes his living, we think, on telling the fortunes of others, so he's cozied up next to the proconsul of Rome, the, the Roman ruler of the area, and he's cozied up next to him, and he's been telling him about the future so that this Roman leader would trust him and bring him into his protection and would make him wealthy. So he's claiming to know the truths of God and to proclaim the truths of God, even in seeing the future, but it tells us he's a false prophet. These things aren't true. He doesn't really know God, and he's not really speaking for God. And so, 
When this proconsul hears about the message that Paul and Barnabas are teaching, he invites them to come to him because he wants to hear from them the word of God. This man's seeking. He's interested. The Spirit's drawing him. But when they come to share with him, Bar-Jesus, the magician, the false prophet, stands and he opposes them. He stands and he opposes them. It doesn't give us details We don't know how he opposed them. We don't know what he did, what his strategy or tactic was here in opposing them. But let's think for a moment about what opposition looks like often, right? Obviously, we have physical opposition. There's there's beatings, there's imprisonments, there's killings. We've seen that in the book of Acts. But more than that, there's often just opposition of presence. Perhaps he distracted them with other things, Distracted the proconsul with other ideas or priorities or arguments. He just talked and he talked and he talked to distract him from the truth that they were saying. Perhaps he discouraged him with biting words. Perhaps he spoke in lies and half-truths to confuse him. Perhaps he antagonizes those who are sharing. He's mocking them and he's challenging them and he's accusing them. Perhaps he shames the sharers and the hearers. That could never be for you. How could you say that? Saul, you know who you were, what you've done. Perhaps he's criticizing the message or the delivery or the messengers. But he's opposing this message. And we see this all the time in our lives. And often we don't even realize it. The enemy uses others, sometimes those who are boldly outside of our faith and sometimes those who are claiming to be in the very middle of our faith. He boldly uses others to oppose the message of the gospel being rooted in our hearts and being rooted in the hearts of those that we would share it with. Sometimes this is done intentionally. Someone has intentionality in doing this and sometimes... Often among us, it's done unintentionally. We don't necessarily mean to oppose Creator God and His gospel message, but we do. Our ideals of faithfulness, right? Are my ideals of your faithfulness suffocate your faithful acts? My legalistic rules imprison the freedom on others. My discouraging uh, disposition And my discouraging words crush the joy in others. My continual need to argue theological points and philosophical approaches silence heartfelt efforts of faithfulness. My lifestyle of sin opposes the very truth that I stand and I speak. Like if we were just to be honest for a moment, like I, I I think that most of us would have to actually admit that at some point, in some way, we do this. We oppose the truth of the gospel in the lives of others through our actions and our words. Somehow, some way. So how did Saul and Barnabas deal with this? Look at verses 9 through 10. But Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, 
you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Notice that Saul is um, filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an important point for us here in his response. Because if you just take his words and what he appears to be um, presenting himself, his tone perhaps even, you might be like, whoa, Paul, back up. You're a little over the edge here. But he's filled with the Spirit when he does this. I point it out because we live in a culture that pushes back on correction, especially correction that comes from any spiritual authority. Spiritual authority, whether that's pastors, whether that's scripture, whether that's your fellow church member who's speaking into your life. We push back on correction. We, we don't think there's a place for that. It's, it's judging. And it's true that oftentimes Paul is gentle and that he is persuading and that he is whimsical. There are times, in fact, most of the times that he is this way. He teaches the church to have gentleness and to have patience and to have kindness. He's the very one who says, be all things to all people that you might reach some. Even when he's correcting the church, he does so usually with gentleness and patience. But but there are times, there are times that he sounds very stern and very correcting. He is not gentle here and he is not timid here. He says, you son of the devil, which is a beautiful play on the guy's name. The guy's name is son of Jesus. Paul goes, you are nothing like Jesus. You're a lot more like the offspring of Satan. You claim to be the son of Jesus. You claim to speak on behalf of God. You claim to speak the truth, but your words are poison and they are wicked and they are evil, you son of the devil. He says, you enemy of righteousness, You claim to be righteous, but you're the enemy of it. He says, you are full of deceit and villainy. You claim to speak truth, but you're so full of lies that it's criminal. And then he says, when will you stop spending your life making crooked the straight paths of God? Our Jesus, God has laid down his straight path simple truth of how to know him and how to come to him and how to receive him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. His grace is sufficient and it's full and anyone who calls on the name of Jesus may be saved. Why do you keep making this complicated? Why do you keep twisting this? Why do you keep turning this? Why do you keep leading people away from this with your words and with your actions? This isn't the only place in scripture that Paul corrects sternly. In Galatians chapter two, he corrects the apostle Peter. Peter comes in, he's sitting down with the Gentiles, Peter the Jew, he sits down with the Gentiles, he's eating with the Gentiles, they're partaking in food. And then when other Jews come in, Paul feels the social pressure and he gets up from the table of the Gentiles because that was not proper with Jews and he goes and sits with the Jews. And Paul corrects him. Paul tells him in in different words, quit making crooked the straight paths of God. 
you're confusing them all. God receives people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, all kinds of people, and your actions at the Gentile table are making crooked that truth. He also tells us in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, when someone stirs up division, warn them once and then twice, and then have nothing to do with them, for they are self-condemned, warped, and sinful. Self-condemned, warped, and sinful. I mean, here he's speaking to the church about the church, and he's saying, listen, if there are divisive Christians in your church, go warn them about their division. And if they don't receive your warning, warn them again about your, the, their division. And if they don't receive that, have nothing to do with them. They're wicked. They're self-condemned. These are hard words, stern words. But the idea that we get is that in Scripture, there is a serious correction that comes when those who claim to be the people of God are making crooked the straight paths of God. And so, church, I'm pleading with us. I'm pleading with you, church, to be a people who humbly receive and who humbly give correction. Who humbly receive. If you're one who tends in this part of the sermon to go, yes, this is a person I need to give correction to, back the horse up, let's go the other way first. Humbly receive it, focus there first. If you're the person that's like, oh, yes, like I, like I, I don't want to give any correction. I, 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 like I could never give someone correction. Then perhaps you need to consider there's people perhaps in your life that you need to humbly offer biblical correction to. But guys, we do that humbly, and we do that prayed up and fasted up and in the power of the Spirit. Don't do it in your temper or in your anger or spur of the moment. The Spirit fill us for that. And may we receive correction humbly. Lastly, verses 11 through 12, we have a superior Savior. Look what happens. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and uh, and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead them by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Paul corrects Bar Jesus, and then he says, the hand of God is upon you, you're about to go blind. And blindness falls upon him. And catch this for a moment. The man who claimed to be able to see the future couldn't see his blindness coming. The man who claimed to be able to lead others into the future was begging for a hand to reach out and lead him to the bathroom. Because though he claimed to be the answer for the proconsul, though he claimed to be the hope that these people needed with his ability, with his magic, with his fortune telling, he believed he was their savior, but there is a superior savior who silenced his false saving and made known his divine power. And it says the proconsul saw these works and heard the gospel truth, and he believed. It was declared, and it was displayed, and he believed.
Church, Jesus saves. I don't know how else to tell you that other than just to tell you it over and over again. He saves, he saves, he saves. Like, if you're one who has never been saved by Jesus, you've never placed faith in him, you're full of sin and you're full of deceit and you're full of pride and you're full of apathy and you want nothing to do with the creator God. Not an ounce of your life has ever been um, laid at his feet in submission and faith and trust. He can save you today. There's no better day in your entire life to be saved than today. He could do that today. Would you believe in the God who saves? The God who sent his son to live a perfect life and to die a death on the cross in your place, receiving your penalty for your sin, who then rose from the dead and has called you into life through faith in him. Would you believe in this Jesus and be saved today? You're not too far off from that. Church, those that you will go into this week and declare and display the gospel to are not too far off from that. He can save. Have faith in that. Christian, I've already asked you to look around you at this room. Here's my plea with you. As you look at each other today, as you're leaving here, in a moment as we take communion and you watch one another walk down front and take the bread and take the juice and come back, as you look around and see each other singing, as you shake hands and you greet and you say goodbye in the lobby and on the streets, just remember for a moment the motley crew that you are, the broken sinners that you are, the God-haters, the rebellious that you are the wickedness that is in each of our hearts from the moment that we're born, and may it spur us to remember his grace that is the only reason any of us stand here in confidence today. Then, may we take seriously the sending and the receiving of those from our church. May we send people with grace and with prayer and with fasting. And those that we have sent, may we remember them and may we pray for them and may we take that seriously. And third, Let us be a people who receive and give correction humbly. None of us are beyond receiving correction. Let us receive that. Let us confess. Let us repent. Let us walk in grace. Let us offer it when needed as well. And fourth, let's just praise God that we have a superior Savior. And may we worship him and may we praise him as we come forward and we take this bread and this juice today. As we do this, as we come and we take communion, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never placed your faith in him, then today we'd ask you to stay in your seat. Rather than inviting you to walk forward and take this bread and this juice, we invite you to take Jesus today. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if he has saved you by his grace, then our invitation to you in a moment is to come forward. You'll exit to your right row by row. You'll come down front. You'll come over. You'll take the bread. You'll take the juice. You'll go back to your seat and take those, and we'll sing one more song and be dismissed. As you come and as you see others come, remember that this is a supernatural community coming forward and taking this in unity only because our Savior is a superior Savior who has redeemed us. So may this be an act of worship for us today. Let me pray for you, and then I'll invite you to come take. Jesus, thank you for your grace, and thank you for your word. Thank you for your correction, and thank you for your sending, and thank you for saving us.
Would you save those in the room who have not placed their faith in you? And would you encourage and strengthen and humble the hearts of those who have? We need that from your word today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, I love you. Come and take Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.